Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and this is Write Medicine, a weekly podcast that explores best practices in creating content that connects with and educates health professionals. I'm a former nurse and an academic who spent the last 16 years as an independent medical writer and researcher, creating and evaluating education content for health professionals. If your work involves planning, designing, delivering or evaluating education for health professionals, this podcast is for you. Celebrating its 10th year as the premier online event for CME professionals, CME Palooza will be back in 2023 with its spring and fall events. So mark your calendars for Wednesday, April 12th and Wednesday, October 18th. CME Palooza. It's free, it's fun, and it's just plain fantastic. Medical research has the potential for far-reaching implications for both individuals and society. Although peer review remains the gold standard to ensure high-quality information, traditional journal submission involves an extensive process that, if you ever tried it, you'll know, is often costly and time-consuming. On this episode of Right Medicine, Mark Riotto shares his insights on medical publishing. Mark is the founder and president of The Research Post, a peer-review publishing channel, and he talks about his campaign to promote a more visual experience for disseminating clinical data in a timely fashion. We explore the advantages of the visual medium, suitable formats and data types for the research post, the process for publishing submissions, and how the research post addresses pain points in the publishing process. Join us. Hello and welcome to Write Medicine. I'm your host, Alex Housen, and I'm here today with Mark Riotto, founder and president of The Research Post. And we're going to be talking about changes in medical publications and the world of disseminating clinical data. Welcome, Mark. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on board. I appreciate it. Yeah, good to see you. And I know that you had a, a session on CME Palooza in the fall. How did that go? Yeah, that was great fun. It, it, the CME area is doing a lot more in terms of, you know, how to communicate, advancing digital formats, and, and certainly using the technology available to achieve their medical education objectives. So it's some, an area that I've been following more closely, you know, as I've been working on the research post. So tell listeners, first of all, who you are and what you do. Oh, thanks. Yeah. So I'm the president and founder of the Research Post, which is a peer-reviewed publishing channel open access, built on a visual presentation format. I worked in medical publications for the pharmaceutical industry for 25 years, either at large or mid-sized companies and some agency work in there as well. And after a long time of working on this, I was just trying to find a different approach to medical publications that we could talk about in a little bit more detail. And before that, I had some experience in healthcare publishing and healthcare journalism, you know, back from my first jobs after college. So you've been kind of in the publications world for for quite a time. So what kind of prompted you to, you know, start thinking about medical publishing in a different way and to really zero in on visual presentation? Yeah, it's something that I was struggling with for a while with the projects that I was working on in the pharmaceutical industry. They took a long time to get published, kind of par for the course. 
and they were expensive from that from that environment working in you know with a pharmaceutical industry sponsoring publication that can be very expensive to deliver that project and take a lot of time and it's not just the cost resources involved but just the the effort the teams that are involved the review process it's a very big process and mm-hmm. at the end of the day i was just looking at the the project i'm working on taking too long and costing too much and regardless of what business activity you're delivering whether you're manufacturing something or delivering some kind of service if it costs too much and takes too long that's kind of bad business so i was looking for a way to improve on those pain points and what hit me shortly after doing it is it's not just the time and and the cost that's involved but ultimately it's the patient you know the patient information and how fast we can get information to, to mm. patients. So by setting up the research post, what I'm trying to accomplish is publish information in a visual presentation format, which is where data starts after a clinical trial is completed. Someone has a slide deck, and this is speaking mostly from the pharmaceutical industry where, I, where I've spent most of my career. Someone has a slide deck and they're sharing that internally or you know limited external stakeholders. And that is what people know and and they talk about, and that's what's used from an educational perspective as well. And then I was in my role was kind of going into putting that into a format of, of long text, thousands and thousands of words that took months and months to deliver. And at the end of the day, I couldn't be sure how much readership that was getting, right? How many of the projects I was working on were getting a deep, full read from that. And you probably know from from your experience too. There, people have their selection strategies on what they have time mm-hmm. to read. There's an information overload, so sure. they can't read everything. And then, even if they do opt to dive into an article, it's usually some kind of skimming strategy that they might have. You know how to how to get the most bang for it, and they'll dive into and read a, a few full manuscripts. But for the most part, their readers are limited in how much time they have to digest all the information that's out there. So I'm trying to put it into a format that we can use, publish it sooner, because you can cut back on some of that development time, and then really put it into a format that people can use. We're used to reading everything on our phones, right? We read it on our phone, we're digital, we're, we're mobile, and you can share it with your friends and your colleagues and just kind of scroll through some images and get to that. So I'm trying to put it into a visual format as opposed to that long text format you know, for certain types of data. So let's talk a little bit about data and formats. I definitely want to get into the question about process, but what kind of data do you see as, you know, appropriate for a visual presentation and how are you formatting that presentation? Yeah, so I think that every kind of study output is appropriate for data visualization. Like I said before, that kind of is where it starts from a a discussion point. Let's take a look at the data. And that's not taking a look at a long study report or a manuscript. It's normally looking at the visual mm-hmm. presentation of the data. From the research post perspective, the, the type of format that we're accepting right now are uh, slide presentations formatted as PDFs for obvious reasons. So, so, no, so someone can take your slide deck and edit it and use it in some other format. Mm. But it would be to take a look at what kind of data works for this format at this stage of it as as basically a startup and a new form of peer-reviewed publication is where it fits is kind of that secondary analysis of a study where the manuscript and the primary methodology and primary results are already published, peer-reviewed, right. published in the manuscript. But there may be more data coming out of that study or there could be pooled analysis across a program. Some of the other types of data that are where it might look 
to be an option would be, you know, pooled analysis, secondary analysis, uh, real world evidence studies, some of these registry studies that go on for a long time and they have multiple, multiple mm-hmm. manuscripts over the course of a, of a study, health economics data, because sometimes you just need to get something published. And I would encourage people to think about what their Congress presentations look like and mm-hmm. where you get a few minutes to present at a Congress. You have seven or eight minutes, if that, right? And, and, uh, and yeah. that might include two minutes for Q&A, where you might have room for seven or eight slides. And I would say, take a look and you might be able to add five or six slides, get up into the you know, 14, 15, 16 slide decks, tell a deep, deeper story, actually, and get that submitted to the research post. And we'll get it peer-reviewed, similar to what a, a medical journal would do, and then come back to you with feedback and have some back and forth within the peer review process to get that published. And again, you know, it's in a format that people can then use, right? It's an open access format, visual. The platform can handle other formats of, of submissions beyond the slides as, as PDFs. But right now, mm-hmm. we kind of have that functionality turned off just to kind of build that base of, of information in a comfort zone with, with slide decks, which people are very comfortable dealing with. Right. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you're, you know, faster than the than kind of conventional publication process. What's your sort of turnaround time? The few publications that we've had submitted so far peer, for peer review, we've been able to get them peer reviewed in less than two weeks. Wow, <laughs> that's really impressive. And other, you know, journals can certain journals can do that as well. Yeah. So we're we're not the only one that that can move that quickly. But I do think as as a rule with peer review, and I think it is a challenge and and not every peer review that I've worked on has been easy either. But I think as a rule with the research post, because I'm going to be sending someone maybe 15 or or so slides to peer review, as opposed to a 40 or 50 page manuscript, that that can cut up down on the burden of peer review. And, you know, that's a, a shift in the format that you know, we'll have to navigate as well because peer reviewers are used to seeing, you know, full length manuscripts and and we're going to give them something a little bit different to take a look at. Now, it might be that we have to request a statistical analysis plan or a protocol summary to support the peer review. So you can kind of look under the mm-hmm. hood and make sure that the, the slides that you're publishing are right. are justified and, and match what you set out to do in a fuller methodology. But for the most part, we think that, you know, we wouldn't publish those. But that would just be for the peer review process to make sure that we can provide a quality peer review. Peer review is not perfect. There's many, you know, many stories about the limitations of peer review, but it remains the goal. Sure. And we recognize that and, and want to do as, as quality of a, a peer review as the next guy. And I'm glad, I appreciate that you brought up that issue of, of what peer reviewers are seeing in the process. And maybe, maybe we'll dig into peer review a little bit in a few moments, and also that you talked about the kinds of data that are appropriate for the research post. Because I was going to ask about context. You know, when you've got a slide deck, you lose so much context, and that's the value of manuscripts and and written documents. Is it provides that kind of wraparound and that framework for thinking about and sorting through the data. So it makes sense that you would be focusing on particular kinds of data and where where that data is in the data production process. Right. And I think it's also where it falls within the scientific or medical communication strategy as well. You know, is it a follow-up study? Is it to address the, a specific scientific question or, or market need if it's a payer discussion question? And I think that's what helps drive the decision for whether the research post mm-hmm. is appropriate or not. And 
what I would say is if, you know, if there's a, a sponsor or research and they have a new mechanism of action for a new cancer drug that, you know, is truly groundbreaking and it should go to one of the leading journals in the world, by all mm-hmm. means go there, right? You know, the research post is probably not there yet. Would I love to get that kind of data? Absolutely. But I recognize where, where we fit in the process right now. But I think that some of that secondary analysis that comes out of it or other exploratory work that might come out of that research stream would be appropriate for the research post. And you can get it out at the same time as, you know, or, or shortly after a primary manuscript or, or key secondary manuscript might publish. When I put my publication lead hat on, if you're looking at a, a study or a series of studies and you have multiple manuscripts that would come out of it, you publish the first one. And the best data I found is that takes a median time of 15 months. Mm. You get published in, a le- a in one of the leading journals. So that means half yeah. take longer. I think that study showed that the average data age for publishing in the leading medical journals, as we know that short list, is the data might be three years old by the time it's published. And that has an impact on, on patient care as well. But from a communication strategy perspective, when you have your primary manuscript, usually you don't start the second one, so you get peer review comments on the first one, and then that one could take 15 months or longer, and if there's a third one, you know, that one could publish three or whatever years after the first one get published. And the way information moves so quickly today, that could negatively impact patient care if there's something important in there. And that was something that hit me quickly after starting the research post as I was trying to address, you know, pain points I saw in my role in the pharmaceutical mm-hmm. industry of around time and cost. But really it's the impact on patients from there with delay in communicating information. And if the goal should be to get information to clinicians as quickly as possible to ideally, you know, help a patient's quality of life or maybe even survival, you know, that's something that I think we should all be striving for. And you know, the traditional way that I, as I saw it, wasn't always addressing that need to, to get information to patients as quickly as, as possible. Right. And what's your process then for turning the visual data, the clinical data that you receive in, you know, a slide deck or some other kind of visual format and turning that into something that is accessible, digestible, shareable across different platforms and devices and so on? Yeah. So with the visual format, I think that that is something that most people can can understand. They're, you know, through the slide deck and you you would have your setup similar to a Congress presentation where you're presenting the problem, the the objective of the study, a summary of the methodology, and then your key results in slide format, ideally in visual or a couple tables and, and bullet points from there. But the the process to accelerate this would be to take those slides and, and someone might have a slide deck 24 or 48 hours after someone completes a study, there's a slide deck. And yeah. Yeah. I would say, give me your 15 best slides and we'll get them peer reviewed and, and published. So once we go back through the peer review process, and we'll t- make sure to address, you know, that the author has a copyright statement on it in terms of how they want to own that. We are open access. We're trying to mm-hmm. give authors and study sponsors greater ownership over their data so that they can then use it as they see fit to communicate it afterwards without having to request permission from from us. So we want the authors and the sponsors to, to maintain their copyrights. With the thinking that they've spent, you know, a lot of money, millions or maybe tens of millions or, or more on a study, that they should own those data uh, and then be able to use them for other purposes and other communications as, as they see fit. 
And you've talked about the peer review process, or you've touched on that a little bit. Can you talk a little bit about how you're managing the peer review process? Yeah, so we have a team of uh, editorial advisors. We have 10 editorial advisors on board and a couple patient communication advisors. We're looking to add more of those as well. Based on the nature of the format is we're trying to be a format that's accessible to everyone. So when we get a, a submission that would be appropriate for a patient education or patient communication, to run it by our patient communication advisors and say, hey, does this format work? Will, will a typical educated mm-hmm. patient understand the presentation of the data in this format? And their patients are being asked to make, you know, get more involved in their healthcare decisions. But the information sure. that we're asking them to use or that they're being asked to use to, to make that informed decision are largely inaccessible to them either because it's in a journal that they don't have access to because they don't subscribe to, or there's a paywall behind it, or it's written in a long text format that they may or, you know, likely mm-hmm. may not understand, right? And despite all the, you know, the pushes around health literacy and plain language summaries, I think there's still some barriers to getting information out there, your fit patients and, and other healthcare providers as well. Yeah, I was going to ask you about plain language summaries, because it seems to me that this is a perfect vehicle for you know, generating generating those kinds of summaries for patients. Is that something that you're planning or you see a space, you know, a role for? Uh, we have not gotten any yet. With the software format as its structure, there's certainly an opportunity to do a plain language summary, either as a separate submission, and you could make it visual similar to what we want our regular submissions to, to be in our, or our original submissions. So you could do a plain language summary with a figure and then some text to describe it and make it manageable for that audiences. Or you could do it as like kind of a blog post as well, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a blog function within the software as well. Once you sign up and become a member and you get your profile and, yeah. and you, can, you know, you have to be a member to submit something. We would encourage all authors to become members, but to, at least one author has to be a member to submit something to get into our review process. And then but the plain language summary is something that we would add, you know, we're certainly advocating for and think that we can, you know, be a good platform for that. It, it's certainly something that has gotten great attention within the medical publications area. Mm-hmm. And do them. Some companies do them as a rule every time out. Others do not. Not every journal accepts them. So, yeah, I'm, I'm seeing that uh, some companies, you know, do that as a, as a point of fact. And I, I think you do see a few more plain language summaries in the US as a matter of as a matter of course and uh, you know they seem to be man- I think they're mandated in Europe aren't they I believe so yeah and it seems that there's other transparency initiatives that are taking place as well but across the world Europe has plan S here in the US, we recently saw the Nelson memo come out a few months ago saying that all government funded research, not just medical research, should be published in an open access format. And that takes place at the end of 2025. So this is coming in terms of open access and other transparency initiatives to make sure that that research is accessible to all. The, you know, going back to what we were talking about before is if just because a manuscript is open access, the, would that mean that it's then accessible to a lay audience or, or to a patient or to a caregiver to understand if it's in a traditional format with long text behind it? And, you know, I'm thinking that's something that we're trying to adjust with the research posters to put something, yeah. you know, into a visual format. Uh, and that might be more understandable, to, you know, despite the other initiatives around transparency and open access. 
the long text format may or may not be how people want to see, receive information this day and age. Mm-hmm. No, for sure. And do you see a role for collaboration with uh, CME organizations to use what you're doing um, since you've already got that material, you know, in a very kind of accessible visual format as a, you know, as a supplement or as a foundation for education activities that are being designed and delivered? Ideally, from a business model perspective, we would like to get into that kind of, of presentation format where it would, you know, where you could do educational programs through the research post format as we expand and, and grow our business and stuff. But from a med ed perspective in terms of doing research, sure, I would love for, you know, research post that we publish to be cited in, in ongoing events and, and to facilitate that. We are approved for a digital object identifier for referencing. You know, mm-hmm. It would be very hard to find someone, say, you know, online or Facebook post from from last August, but with the DOI for referencing, you can just click on that reference and it and we'll link you right back to the reference. So that's an important part of of making this work, right? Without the ability to to have a DOI for published research post, this would would not work. But I think the collaboration with, with CME is an opportunity, you know, not just to have the research that we publish, you know, get cited in ongoing med ed programs, but also to take a look at whether the research post would be a, an appropriate venue to publish some of the needs assessments or outcomes analysis that come out of a med ed mm. program and say, you know, here was the baseline learning. We've ran a program and then here at the end and we tested again, we saw improvement in these parameters. And then maybe still, you know, this unmet need remains as something to address because there's a lot of that research going on that may or may not get published otherwise, but it informs, you know, disease awareness or physician understanding of of concepts within the area. And I think especially as, you know, we look at an area where, for example, oncology research is is growing every day. Gene therapies Mm -hmm. and and cell therapies are, are advancing the science on a, you know, daily, weekly basis there's there's great breakthroughs across the way so how do we measure what people know and what do they know through you know medical education and then what you know how do you communicate that kind of information back to say yeah here's here's an area we still need to work on i love that idea oh yeah go ahead, and we'll just go back to my original point well you can do it as a manuscript but that could take 15 months <laughs> yeah so we think that this you know is well suited to try and communicate that a little bit sooner get that information out faster I think it's really interesting to think about what you're doing as a kind of repository for needs assessments and outcomes reports and that kind of thing, because, you know, the CME field's been talking about having that kind of repository for years and years and years. But, and it is, it it is very time consuming to, you know, get that kind of information out into the public domain, you know, via manuscripts and so many just don't get published at all or even get into the review process. But there is still that kind of proprietary legacy, particularly attached to needs mm-hmm. assessments, is really hard to yeah. get access to companies' needs assessments. So I, I, I'm kind of liking that idea of opening up transparency for those kinds of uh, vehicles as well. You touched on copyright a couple of times. What are the copyright implications for your authors? Like I said before, we want the authors and the sponsors to own their data. We want to give them control right. over their data and how they communicate it. And you know, I look back at my time in, in the pharmaceutical industry is just because if, and, you know, the publications team would work with the authors and just because they got published in a high impact factor journal, so to speak, it doesn't mean that the rest of the company then stops doing what they doing from a, what they do from a communication perspective. 
you know, from a scientific exchange perspective or medical science liaisons and, you know, med info, standard response letters and all the communication activities of a pharmaceutical company as a sponsor. And that's where, you know, I have most of my career. So that's what I think of a lot. So all of that happens regardless of whether you publish the data, regardless of where you publish the data. And I'm Mm -hmm. just of the mindset that if the data has more value once it's published, and then the rest of those educational activities can happen either through scientific exchange or commercial communication if it meets that, you know, if it meets those regulatory requirements for, for commercial communication. And if you can start those discussions six, nine, or 12 months earlier, I see more value in that as opposed to just, hey, we published in, in this journal, which has a reputation for being great. Mm. And that's what we're trying to address with the copyright you know, that we're offering it is to make sure that the, the authors are, are providing a copyright statement. We, we're not copyright lawyers, but we tell them, hey, you should include something. Here are some options that you might want to consider and then let them make the mm-hmm. decision. But make sure that they're putting copyright on it, that they can use it even for a commercial perspective as they, you know, if they're able to. And then with oh, the right copyright requirements, you can allow other people to use it as, as they see for non-commercial purposes and all, and all the other ramifications mm-hmm. of, of copyright. It's, mm-hmm. it's something that, that we saw as a pain point for having to acquire your data back once you get it published. Right. Yeah, for sure. And you've talked about you've talked about accessibility. You've talked about open access. You've talked about transparency. How far do you think that? And and also this idea that you know certainly open access and transparency are concepts that most of the world are starting to kind of grapple with and trying to extend and expand. There's certainly a lot of debate and discourse around mm-hmm. transparency in the presentation of clinical data. How how far do you think transparency can be pushed in the publication of access to data and research results? Well, I were of the mindset that if someone really wanted to find out the protocol of a study or, you know, deeper dive into the methodology or, or full results, that they can find that, perhaps, right? Or make a request to the study sponsor or the author for, for more access mm-hmm. to the data as opposed to what's already in the manuscript. Sometimes that works. It could be a deep dive, though. Yeah, right. right. Yeah, sometimes that works. Sometimes it doesn't. I've, I, yeah. I'm not. My limited experience with with seeing requests around data transfer and or data transparency. The couple papers I've seen is that, for the most part, people requesting the data don't get it. Right. That that mm. uh, there's still some issues with that. Oh. Either the response is, is denied or it just never gets addressed and you know in the academic circles. That that's what I've seen published. I don't know how accurate that is, but that's what I sense to be the, the situation. I believe the EMA in Europe is publishing clinical study reports. The FDA does not. I, I think they had a pilot program that they tried for a couple of years and they canceled that in 2020 to look at another way. But clearly there's a push to for more transparency in this whole clinical trial and data dissemination area. Mm-hmm. And it's going to, that's not going to go away. I, I, I don't know what yeah. the, solu- the long-term solution to that will be, but I don't think that that is going away. And I think that we'll have to be ready for that as a, you know, a research and, and medical communication and medical education field will have to evolve with that. And, you know, so will publishers from a publishing perspective as well. How much do you give? How much is too much? 
I've worked on manuscripts where there's supplemental information with, you know, 50 additional data tables. Do I expect that that gets read any more than a, than the regular manuscript? Probably not, right? Yeah. Uh, so that may or may not be a good use of resources to go through that effort to, to do it that way and have to go through all the re- approval channels for that, for something that might have limited utility on, on the user end anyway. Although there may be someone looking for it, what is then the path for that someone who really wants to get that information? What's the, the path for them, he or she, to get it? And it may not be just publish everything, right? Right, right. I, I do want to kind of end up with, uh, you know, your take on what's happening and, you know, what you anticipate in the future of medical publishing. But before we do that, just to kind of circle back to one of the things that you said at the very beginning of the conversation is how challenging it is to track and really get a clear picture of, you know, who's reading data and where where are they reading it. So presumably the way you, your process works allows you to track who's reading and how they're reading and, and what they're reading. Is that the case? Yeah, so we can do a little bit of, of insights on how many views it's gotten, how it is used. But really what we're trying to say is we'll get it published, right? And we'll, we'll do the best we can to expand that audience within, you know, our, our means. But by publishing it with the copyright situation, as, as we publish it, we want the authors and the sponsors to be able to share it and do what they want, whether put it on other social media right. channels or other communications from that, and that, that they can do what they want. We'll do what we can do, but we want to make sure that they can do what they can do with it as well, too. Because it is important to to share information because you can publish in a great journal you know or a decent journal or or anywhere, and you're not sure how many people are are going to to see that and you know research shows maybe a third of the time or less people are looking at an article for the most part, mm-hmm. they might be skimming mm-hmm. an abstract or or you know glancing through the figures and and using their own reading strategies to get at it. you know there's thirty thousand or so medical journals. We're trying to do another public publishing channel to to fit into that mix. We we think we're different than journals, mm-hmm. but we are trying to be, you know, in that environment where you're you have a peer reviewed opportunity to publish your data. We see an opportunity to improve on some of those pain points, and and like I said, offer another approach to do it. It may not be for every type of data set, but we think there are a number of data sets that are well suited to this. You know, and I didn't mention you, you were talking about before about the MedEd stuff, uh, but I also think like digital health initiatives. I mean, we're, we're tracking mm-hmm. patient data all the time, either through devices or, or apps. And it's gone beyond just, hey, here's a reminder, take your medicine today. You know, some of these digital apps are asking, do you have, you know, how's your pain today? Even if pain may not be a primary symptom or a condition, how'd you sleep last night? What's your quality of life today? Do you able to work? And there's all this data out there that might inform the patient discussion and the patient journey to have someone say, hey, this. Other people are out there like me, right? They struggle with the same things I, I struggle with. And, and that we think is informative, right? It, it may not be, you know, phase three clinical trial for a new breakthrough medicine, but it is important to people's health and, and quality of life and, and, mm-hmm. and that whole patient journey. So are you at the beginning of a wave in medical publishing? Where do you see things going in the future? Well, digital enhancements are, are happening. Visual presentations, journals are doing them. There's audio slides and, videos and and all these other kind of you know what referred to as data enhancements but they're still tied to a long manuscript right to a to a, a 3000 or 4000 word text manuscript mm-hmm. that takes many months to write and develop and review and get peer reviewed and deal with high rejection rates at journals and stuff like that so 
the data enhancement or digital enhancement is is kind of an add-on to that. And it just, we're trying to get right to that digital presentation format, recognizing that pe- most people may want to read in that format anyway, as opposed to, to seeing a long manuscript. And that's happening. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to sit here three or five years from now and say I didn't take a shot to try and address mm-hmm. pain points that I saw in the medical communication process and say, but I, w- I wish I would have taken a shot on to you know, accelerate the pace of medical research communication because I think there's a, there's an opportunity there to do something better and not better, but faster and, and to put it into a format mm-hmm. that people can can actually use. I don't think manuscripts are going to go away in, in the in the short term, but maybe down the road as our communication tools have evolved and, and how we're used to receiving information that, you know, th- th- this is going to evolve as well. And I think the business model around how Publishers have to deal with the transparency issues, the open access initiatives. You know, it's not just governments that are asking their funded research to be published open access. It's funding bodies like the Wellcome Trust and Robert Wood Johnson mm-hmm. yeah. Foundation are all asking that the research they fund is, is published open access. So there are changes happening and it's really picked up, it seems, over the past couple of years. And we're trying with the research post to be part of that solution to offer another opportunity or another option to publish quality peer-reviewed medical research in the healthcare and medical fields. And where can people find you if they want to explore uh, what you're doing at the Research Post? Yeah, the website is www.theresearchpost.com. You have to get the the into the website address. Uh, And I always say if it's good enough for thelancet.com, it's good enough for theresearchpost.com. So that's where we're at. We've published a few research posts so far, uh, and we're uh, certainly seeking to you know, get more submissions from, you know, various therapeutic areas and, and different data formats because we're looking to help authors publish their data across all different kinds of research areas. And the, the is not to be confused with the uh, British band from the 1980s. <laughs> and we'll make sure to include a, a link in the show notes to theresearchpost.com. Thank you. Mark Riotto. thank you for sharing your insights on medical publishing and what you're doing at the Research Post to bring a more visual experience to the process of reading about and learning from clinical data. Thanks, Alex. I appreciate it. If you're like me and see yourself as a lifelong learner who loves connection with other CME professionals, come and check out what Right Medicine offers in terms of community and courses. And I'd love to hear from you what you're interested in learning more about on the podcast. And if you like the podcast or a particular episode, consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or share with your colleagues and peers. There's a link in the show notes to help you do all of these things. See you next time.